come, the promises of what Jesus will provide that we are still looking to be fulfilled, and it places us in that in-between time and helps us to clarify our hope, our longing and expectation. And last week, we noticed that, or what we said was that Isaiah is especially useful to us in our Advent season because Isaiah, as much as any other part of the Bible, gets the fact that all humans have a, a fundamentally... Um, a fundamentally common problem. All of us have the same problem and that it, there's two sides to our problem. On the one side, our problem is the things that are outside of us that threaten us and that we can't control, the things that cause us to fear. We, we, are, we are thwarted, we are buffeted about by sorrow and, and oppression, by evil and injustice and we fear those things and we look for deliverance from the brokenness of the world. Things that happen to us make us victims. Things like the shooting in Connecticut this week. We look to Jesus because the world is like that and we can't control it. Many of you connect most with this side of the human problem, with the problem of oppression of exploitation of the weak by the strong, of brokenness and sorrow. This side to our human problem makes us long for a king who would come and rule with a strong hand, with a mighty sword that will leave no injustice unpunished, that will clear the world of all opposition to him and to what is good and right and peaceful. We long for that king. But there's another side to the human problem. Evil is not just something that's out there, right? That's characteristic of other people. That is their problem that is done to us. Evil is more than that. It's, it's also in us. It also governs how we think and feel, how we treat each other. We're all rebels. We're selfish. We're vain. We're prideful. We're untruthful. So any justice, here's the problem, right? To boil it down, any justice that we long to see God deliver for us would also implicate us. Any judgment on injustice would require judgment on us. We have to confront the problem of our sin. And, and here, Isaiah chapter 64 is a really, really crucial help to us. Isaiah chapter 64, that's where we're going to be this morning. It, it helps us look to Jesus in light of the problem that's in us, not just outside of us, and calls on us to be honest about who we are, to be humble as we come to God for deliverance, and to be hopeful in claiming the promised Messiah. That's what we're going to look at this morning from Isaiah chapter 64. Now, if you found, your, uh, found the passage in your Bible, would you please stand with me in honor of God's word as we read together? This is the word of the Lord from Isaiah chapter 64. Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down, that the mountains might quake at your presence, as when fire kindles brushwood and the fire causes water to boil, to make your name known to your adversaries, and that the nations might tremble at your presence. When you did awesome things that we did not look for, you came down. The mountains quaked at your presence. From of old, no one has heard or perceived by the ear. No eye has seen a God besides you who acts for those who wait for him. You meet him who joyfully works righteousness, those who remember you in your ways. Behold, 
you were angry, and we sinned. In our sins, we have been a long time, and shall we be saved? We have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. We all fade like a leaf, and our iniquities like the wind take us away. There is no one who calls upon your name, who rouses himself to take hold of you, for you have hidden your face from us and have made us melt in the hand of our iniquities. But now, O Lord, you are our Father. We are the clay, and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. Behold, please look, we are your people. Your holy cities have become a wilderness. Zion has become a wilderness. Jerusalem, a desolation. Our holy and beautiful house where our fathers praised you has been burned by fire and our pleasant places have become ruins. Will you restrain yourself at these things, O Lord? Will you keep silent and afflict us so terribly? This is the word of the Lord. You can be seated. Getting ready to celebrate Jesus' coming with eyes that are open starts with honesty. It starts with a willingness to confess who you are. And I don't know of another passage in all of the Bible that's more honest in its confession of sin, that frames the problem more clearly and poignantly than Isaiah chapter 64. Before we get into the details of how he describes sin, please don't miss the way he sets this up. It's a perfect segue from what we looked at last week in Isaiah chapter 25. The, 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 the chapter begins looking from Israel's perspective in exile. It's looking ahead into the future to a time when, because of their sin against God, Israel would be wiped clean from the land. They would be taken from the land promised their fathers and plopped down in the land of a godless and cruel people, subjects or slaves, wondering if this means that the promises given to their fathers in the ancient times were now no longer going to be possible. Has God, in other words, given up on us? And then they had received promises like the one we looked at last week. Isaiah 25, promises of God establishing its new world with Jerusalem at the center of it, this place of meeting between God and and humankind, a place where there would be no sorrow and no death. And yet here they are, figuratively, symbolically in Babylon, wondering if God was done with them. And they call out to him, Oh, that you would rend the heavens and come down. The images of of God taking a curtain that conceals him from the world and just ripping it apart and coming down to make sure that everyone knows he is God. So that that his adversaries, those who are against peace and goodness, would know that he is who he claims to be and he will not stand for it. They want justice. That's what they want in the first verses of chapter 64. They want justice. They want the mountains to quake just like in the days of old when God came to his people in the wilderness on the mountain of Sinai, met with them, gave them his name and his identity. They want that God to show up and to clear their captors away. That part makes sense. They cite God's previous action. They call for more of the same. 
they admit that he's unique and holy. There's no one like him. But then, then in verse 4, things start to turn. See, this holy and unmatched God, this one true God of the universe, the one who, who is responsible and solely responsible for establishing justice once and for all, well, he responds to something very specific in his people. He responds to those who treat him as he deserves to be treated, with trust. He responds to those who wait for him. And Israel would have known when they read that sentence or heard it proclaimed that they had not waited. They had gone after every god that seemed trendy in the moment. After every one of their powerful neighbors, they wanted what they had and they thought their gods could provide it. They didn't wait for God to deliver. Uh Uh-oh. Things don't get any better in verse 5. This God, the God they want to rend the heavens and come down and establish justice, well, he, he comes down for those who... for those who... Meet him with joyful works of righteousness for those who remember his ways. Oh no. Verse 5 turns to the reality for Israel at the time. The problem is that Israel, the nation, and all of its individuals, they were persistent, habitual failures. Verse 5 says, you were angry and we sinned, and in our sins we've been a long time. They're stuck there. They can't get out of it. They haven't even wanted to get out of it. So this God on whom they depend for justice must come in justice against them. They've been guilty of the very things that they despise. So, verse 5 says, shall we be saved? What Isaiah is getting at here is precisely the problem that C.S. Lewis articulates so well in one of my favorite sections of his book called Mere Christianity. If it's not a book that you've read, I think you would really, it would really be worth your time. There's a couple of them on the resource table back here. Uh, we'd be happy for you to take that. It'd be our gift to you. Um, it's, a, it's a great book that will encourage you, especially if you're having questions, basic questions about Christianity. In one of the chapters, a chapter aptly titled, we have cause to be uneasy. C.S. Lewis admit, or he acknowledges the fact that all of us have this sense that we have to have justice. There has to be goodness in the world. It, we can't just be accidents here that, that are just governed by whoever has power, right? The might that might makes right. I mean, has, have we ever been more aware of that than reading stories about what happened this week in Connecticut, right? That cannot be natural, What we saw, children cut down in their innocence, cannot be the natural way of the world. It just can't be. It has to be evil. But if that's to be evil, if that is not just to be normal survival of the fittest kind of behavior, just what it looks like to live in this world, then we've got to have a God who made everything, who set up what is and isn't okay, who stands for the weak and against the strong. That's what we need if we want to condemn what happened in Connecticut. And, and if we're going to have it, then that means that God always cares about goodness. That means that God cares when we're not good. It means that he cares when we are unjust. Here's how Lewis puts it. If the universe is not governed by an absolute goodness 
then all our efforts are in the long run hopeless. That's what we've just been saying. If, if, if our efforts to do anything meaningful are to have any sort of lasting impact, then we have to believe that evil and death are unnatural, that what is natural is good and right and just because of God. And we need God for that. But if it is, if the universe is governed by absolute goodness, then we're making ourselves enemies to that goodness every day. And we're not in the least likely to do any better tomorrow, and so our case is hopeless again. We can't do without it. We can't do with it. God is the only comfort. He is also the supreme terror, the thing we most need and the thing we most want to hide from. He's our, own, our only possible ally, and we have made ourselves his enemies. That's Lewis. That's exactly what Isaiah is trying to say. He's stuck in this quandary. It's with that background that Isaiah gives us his really clear and, and, and compelling, vivid description of what our sin is like. So if we want to really connect with looking to Jesus and why we need him to deliver us, we need to see what Isaiah says here about what we are like, our, our sort of diagnosis. We need to get to this point of honesty that Isaiah has reached where we say, you know what, we're guilty of the things we despise, and here is how. Lord, deliver us. To help us connect with what our sin is like, with what the problem that's in us looks like. Isaiah, like all great poets, gives us a series of similes. I hope that word makes sense. It's, it's one of the most common features in, in poetry and, and a, a lot of vivid uh, writing. It's, it's where you say that this thing is like this thing, right? It gives you an image, a, a picture in your mind to help you understand the idea. And here, in verses 6 and 7, Isaiah gives us a few similes, a few things that our sin is like. And I think you will probably connect with this, and, and sound, this will seem as familiar to you as it does to me. The first is in verse 6. We have all become like one who is unclean. Unclean. It's not a, not a reference to dirt that you could wash off of your hands. It's a reference to disease and infection. It's the thing that lepers would have to cry out when they walk through town. Unclean. Get away. What it means is that our problem is not really something out there that's been done to us, but it's inside of us. We are not contaminated by the things that we touch or that touch us. We contaminate what we touch. The problem is in us. We have a disease. This is the great flaw in, in much of monasticism through the, the history of the church and, and in its own way. Uh, through, through a brand of Christianity very popular in America in the last century, where the idea was to be faithful and to be holy, you need to isolate yourself from the world, right? You need to get yourself into a place where you can be pure, to cut yourself off from contaminating influences. And, th- and though there's a way that we can understand some truth in that, that we, we do want to protect ourselves from temptation, what it misses is the fact that our biggest problem, our biggest tendency towards sin is not the things that touch us, but the things that we touch. It comes from inside of us. You can't get the world out of you. It's not about getting yourself out of the world. It's about getting the world out of you, and it's in there. It's who you are. You contaminate what you touch. That's the point of Isaiah 64. The next image gets at the same thing even more clearly. Isaiah says, all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. To be perfectly frank, the reference there is to a menstrual cloth 
that would have been viewed in Israel's rituals and, and, uh, and, and their ideas about ritual purity as one of the most contaminated things that you could touch. It would make you un, unable to go into the to temple and worship, for example, for a certain amount of time. It was, these were things that you had to burn immediately. It was polluted and unclean. Our righteousness, in other words, the best things that we could do are no more than a cloth that's destined to be burned. What he's getting at is, is something I think we probably can all see in ourselves. And that is that even the best things we do, even the times when on paper it looks like we're obeying what God has called for from us, even the best things we do, we ultimately don't do for the right reasons. Isaiah chapter 29 talks about this. We won't take time to read it now. We'll get to it later in our series. But in Isaiah 29... God speaking through Isaiah talks about the fact that people have, are still going through all the motions. They still come to the temple. They still say the right words, but their hearts are far from God. The point is it's just empty. It's hypocritical. It's going through the motions. It's more about them than about God. It's what Jesus was getting at when he talks to the Pharisees. He describes the Pharisees, this really holy, self-righteous band of religious people. He describes them as cups that are washed on the outside and filthy on the inside. Our righteousness is polluted because it's really more important to us the statement that it makes about us than the statement it makes about God. How often do we wish and work to be known as one who cares for other people, right? to be known as one who cares for others, who gives to others, who sacrifices their time for the good of others. How often is our concern for the poor or for the starving for the, or for social justice, the kinds of things we talked about last week, turned into nothing more than a fashion statement, than an attempt to craft an image for the world that we're, that we're proud of? How often is it a t-shirt we wear, a bumper sticker that we slap on the car? It's about us. It's not about God and his glory. Our righteousness is filthy, fit for nothing more than a consuming fire. Here's the last simile. The last thing it's like, he says, is we fade like a leaf, withered, dead, falling off to be carried away by the stream of our iniquities. Too apathetic and sleepy even to call out to God, verse 7 says. We don't even, we don't even, we've gotten to the point where we don't even cry out for his help anymore. We're just a dead leaf swept away by our sin. Isn't that a great image for what addiction is like? If you've known it in any of its forms, you resonate with this. You're just carried away. At this point, your life is zapped. You have nothing left to resist and you're just carried away by the stream of substance addiction or sexual addiction or any other sort of all-consuming, captivating pattern of sin. That's what we're like. We're all addicts, powerless to control our problem. What's remarkable about Isaiah 64, and this is the thing to take away, right? Beyond this diagnosis of us, the thing to take away is to notice how honest Isaiah, on behalf of Israel, has become in this passage. He's just laying it out there. Gone are the deflections, the, the passing of blame to some other force that makes me who I am and like I, that I'm powerless against. 
Gone are the self-justifications that come so easy to us. That, that yeah, I, that may be true that I'm, I'm weak over here, but look at this other thing about me. Doesn't that make up for it, right? We all do this. One of the greatest barriers to us being honest before God and admitting who we are, like Isaiah's called us to here, is that we are, we are afraid of what that means about us. And we are naturally given to justifying ourselves. We justify, make up for, account for the things that are weak in our lives by pointing to things that we think are strong about our lives. I don't want to be known by you as a mechanic because I'm not good at fixing things. I would rather be known by you as a good father or a good preacher or a likable guy. I'm putting my eggs in those baskets to make up for the fact that I have no skills over here. I have weakness to compensate for. All of us do it. May not look like a supermodel anymore, but at least I'm a great mom, right? Or I may not be good at this subject, right, if you're, if you're a student, but at least I'm, I'm acing these tests over here. All of us have these equations that we do to make things balance out. One of the, one of the most interesting takes on this that I read recently was a column in the New York Times by a guy named David Brooks. He, he does a lot of, uh, of reading and different social science experiments just to try to understand what humans are like and how we, how we live together. And one of, the, one of the columns I read this year that, that he wrote was about this sort of equation we're all trying to do, this balancing act, this self-justifying. We make up for what's weak about us by emphasizing something we think is strong about us. He was citing this book that, in which a, a social scientist did a few experiments to show how this works in practice. For example, he had this, this social scientist um, set up a, 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 a Coke, a can of Coke, and a dollar bill in a, in a dorm room common kitchen, right? And when he would do this, the coat gets stolen, the dollar bill gets left. Why? Similar, similar uh, experiment. He had one of his colleagues who was blind and one of his colleagues who was sighted hail a cab in New York City. And sure enough, the colleague that was blind, the, the, the cab took the most direct route, the cheapest way, refused to rip them off. A colleague that had sight, well, the cabbie was going all over the place, you know, running up the fare, ripping him off. Why? Why? Both of these experiments make the same point. They we're all willing to do certain things that we wouldn't want done to ourselves, but we make up for that by saying, you know what, we draw the line here. Would not rip off someone who's blind. Would not steal money. I'll steal a Coke or, you know, some music or whatever. But I won't steal money. I wouldn't steal a CD, but I'll steal the digital file online, right? We, we all... We all have these balancing acts that we do. Here's what Brooks says. His conclusion is really insightful. He says, For the past several centuries, most Westerners would have identified themselves fundamentally as depraved sinners, kind of like Isaiah 64. In this construct, Brooks says, sin is something you fight like a recurring cancer. It's part of a daily battle against evil. It's Isaiah 64. I am unclean. Even my righteousness is a polluted garment. But these days, Brooks continues, People are more likely to believe in their essential goodness. People who live by the good person construct try to balance their virtuous self-image with their selfish desires. They try to manage the moral pluses and minuses and keep their overall record in positive territory. In this construct, moral life is more like dieting. I love this. Think about this image and think about it as it relates to yourself and not to other people, okay? Moral life is more like dieting. I give myself permission to have a few cookies because I had salads for lunch and dinner. 
I give myself permission to cheat a little because when I look at my overall life, I see that I'm still a good person. And in my small group recently, we were, uh, we were going through this great discussion curriculum called the Gospel-Centered Life. And one of the lessons, one we were looking at recently, was on how we do this, how all of us do this. And the category it, gave, it gives to this action is pretending. All of us are held back from being honest about who we really are because we can't face up to that truth, and instead we pretend. We find various ways of pretending. There's all sorts of ways to become righteous in your own eyes. We all have our own, but we all are pretenders. And what this, what this study points out is that every time we do this, whenever we do it, to whatever extent we do it, we're shrinking the cross and how necessary it is. Because however, however much we're able to elevate ourselves in our own eyes, to that extent, it's that much, further, uh, it's that, it's that much less that Jesus has to come down to us to save us. The cross becomes that much less significant. And to, to put that in terms of what we're doing together as a congregation now, getting ready to celebrate Christmas, to see clearly, fully why we need Jesus so bad. Our un- inability to admit who we are, our, our, our tendency towards pretending, keeps us from appreciating the full weight of what Jesus came to offer us. The question is, Where can we find the courage to be honest, to strip away the pretense, to stop pretending? That's the question you should be asking yourself after reading verses 1 to 7 of Isaiah 64. Where can we get the inner resources we need to do what Isaiah is doing here and just say, you know what, I'm giving it up. This is who I am. We're going to come back to that. The second step in this passage, the second step that we'll have to take if we want to appreciate Jesus fully, if we want to understand how Jesus has come to release us from our sins, is we've got to be humble. We've got to be humble. And that means crying out to God our Father, not as one who has anything to offer, not as a bargainer, but as one who's got nothing. Point one is about admitting who we are. Point two is about what you do when you recognize who you are and you still need God. When you've got nothing to offer him, but you've also got no hope without him, what do you do? Isaiah continues to give us a voice to Israel's posture before God, before God, and it's remarkable. I want to notice a couple things about it in verses 8 and 9. Now, O Lord, Isaiah says, you are our father. We are the clay and you are our potter. We are all the work of your hand. Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not your iniquity, our iniquity forever. Behold, please look. We are your people. A couple things here. The first is that Isaiah and Israel come to God empty-handed. They are openly and helplessly humble. There's no defensiveness, there's no excuses, there's no bargaining, no suggestions, and no pretending. They say, they, they tell it like it is. You are God, and we're not. You made me, you're the potter, and I'm the clay. Now, the, the weight of this confession comes down a lot harder if you understand some of what's already happened in Isaiah. 
And we haven't looked at this. So I'm going to ask you quickly just to flip to Isaiah chapter 29, just so I can point this out. It's powerful when we can see it. Isaiah 29 is one of of several places where this image of potter and clay comes up in Isaiah. And until Isaiah 64, it's never a good thing. It's always about Israel reversing the roles. Israel acting as if God was something they could shape after their own image and desires rather than than the alternative. And in chapter 29... He connects this tendency that Israel has to be, the, to be the potter and have God be the clay, to make their own God, so to speak. He connects that tendency in chapter 29 to the same tendency we talked about in point one, their tendency to pretend, to sort of put on righteousness rather than actually owning it from the heart. In Isaiah 29, verse 13, the Lord describes Israel as a people who draw near with their mouth and honor him with their lips, but their hearts are far from him. And, and here's the key. The fear of God, he says, it's a commandment taught by men. It's, it's book learning for them. It's not genuine. It's not something they own. It's something they learn to recite. Like you recite your ABCs, but you still can't spell. You don't know what to do with the information. That's where Israel is. They're still going through the motions. From the outside, looking in, they might look fine to you. But God knows the heart, and he knows that they are doing it not because they love him, as an expression of dependence and affection for him. But they're doing it to try to control him. They're doing it to make him a God who does their bidding rather than them, a a people who obey and live for the God who made them and is making them new. That connection is made a little further down in verse 16. What they're doing when their hearts are far from him but they're still going through all the motions, verse 16, I think, gives us insight. You turn things upside down, the Lord says. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me, or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? You see that reversal? Their attempt to sort of do all the right things is merely an attempt to put God in their service, to form him into something that does their bidding, into an idol essentially, a genie that if rubbed in just the right way with just the right set of words and just the right set of actions will give you everything that you want. In fact, the point is, I think, they want to put God in their debt. They want him to owe them. But here in chapter 64, that's all gone. Here in chapter 64, the same image and the same connection between who they are and their sin and God as the potter is reversed. Here they admit, we're just the clay. You are our potter. We're the work of your hand. They recognize finally who God is and the only way they can relate to him. The fact that he is the potter, that we are the clay, well, that means that he doesn't owe us anything. But it also means that he can make us new. The God who made us has the power to remake us. That's the first thing to notice about this passage. The second, the second, in addition to this empty-handed, open, openly, uh, openly helpless humility that Israel displays, the second thing is what they actually appeal to in God. Without anything to present to him, and acknowledging that, they got, that, that not only do they have nothing, but they are actively the very things God despises and must judge, how are you going to come to him now? 
What possible hope can you have? What possible reason can you have for believing that the potter who made you and whom you've rebelled against might actually refashion you and make you new? These two verses have a clear hint for us. They appeal to God as Father. They beg for Him to look on your people. When they ask that He not remember their sins anymore, they come to Him on the terms that He Himself had set with with this people from the beginning. Terms that were like more like the terms of a family than the terms of just some sort of business contract. Ties that can't be broken, that are irrevocable, that are permanent. What they come to God citing is His unconditional promises to their forefathers. They remind Him of their status as the people of the promises. And they appeal to that bond and that one alone. They bring nothing but an appeal to Him as their Father, to the promise that God is near to the brokenhearted, that He comes near to those who are crushed in spirit. It's on this basis that they pray He will forget their sins. They're not claiming they don't have any. They're praying that He will forget them. But how is this possible? Remember how Lewis framed it. What we know is that what happened in Connecticut this week cannot be okay. It has to be unnatural. It has to be judged. How could we live if this is what the world is supposed to be? What we also know is that we are guilty in ourselves of the things that we despise. And in calling out to God as Father and asking that He not remember our sins anymore, what possible reason can we have for believing He can pull this off? He is a God who must punish sin. What are we going to do? How is He going to avoid punishing us? How can He stay? Here's a way to put it. How can He stay true to His fatherly love and mercy when His justice demands that evil be punished? Hoping for and even depending on his commitment to justice for their survival, how can Israel hope that he would show them mercy? Chapter 64, verse 12, frames the question in its own way, and it helps point us ahead to the hope we should have in the promised Messiah. Here's the way that that verse frames the same question. Will you keep silent And afflict us so terribly. Read in light of this whole chapter, will you still afflict us as we deserve? That's the question that chapter 64 leaves in the air. Will you allow our sins to be the final word on who we are and on where we end up? That's an open question that the Old Testament just doesn't resolve for us. One of the best ways that I've heard the Bible described is as a two-act play. A two-act play where at the end of the Old Testament, the curtain falls. and Everything leading up to that moment has built the narrative to a tension that demands some sort of resolution. How can God be the God of the promises and the Holy One of Israel who cannot look on sin and not judge it? What is He going to do with us? his exiled people to whom he's bound himself by a covenant but who have failed him so miserably. Has, have the promises of God failed? (laughs) 
The Old Testament doesn't attempt to reconcile this, but Isaiah does give us a hint. Isaiah introduces us to one known as the servant. A servant who would suffer for the sins of the people. It's chapter 53 that introduces this mysterious figure, this one who's sent by God to bear the sins of the people. I want to read to you from 53 verses 4 to 6. I want you to hear this language in light of chapter 64, where Isaiah and Israel have finally come to terms with the fact that they are unclean, polluted, like a faded leaf with nothing to offer. Will you afflict us so terribly, O Lord? Here's Isaiah 53. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. That is Isaiah 64. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. I mentioned that this figure, this servant, is a mysterious one. Mystery would not have been that the sins of the people could get transferred to someone or something else. That would have been familiar. That goes back all the way to Passover and even before. They were used to putting the sin symbolically on the head of a goat and sending him out of the camp, banishing sin from the people. What's mysterious is not the substitution part, but that the substitute is a man, a man of sorrows, that his sacrifice seems to be a permanent solution to the problem of Israel's sin. The mystery is this. Who is this man? How can he bear the sins of other people rather than his own sins? When will he come? The curtain that falls at the end of the Old Testament lifts with the story that's told to us by the New Testament Gospels. In the light of Isaiah and of the problem that we've been talking about and this promise of one who's to come. Matthew's introduction of Jesus is especially powerful, I think. In particular, that scene where the angel comes to Joseph, whose wife-to-be Mary is with child, and he tells to Joseph that she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. He will save his people from their sins. That could be the theme verse for Matthew's whole story about Jesus. It's a story he picks up right where Isaiah had left off and carries through the perfect life of Christ, his death, and ultimately his resurrection. But at one of the crucial moments, on the night that Jesus died, one of the turning points for the whole story, Jesus interpreted his death for his followers in the language of the covenant. The same language that goes through Isaiah 64. When Isaiah 
talk to, to, calls out to God to remember their iniquities no more and calls him father and calls Israel his people. They're talking the language of God's promises, his covenant to them. And that's the language Jesus picks up on the night that he died in a pivotal scene where he's explaining himself to his followers. And as he institutes this supper that they'll use to remember his death as long as he waits till for his coming, he tells them this. I want you to remember the, ver- the, the, the words of Isaiah 64. Isaiah had pled, Be not so terribly angry, O Lord, and remember not iniquity forever. In Jesus, the Father answers Isaiah's plea with these words. This is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Jesus is Isaiah's suffering servant. Jesus is the one on whom our iniquities are laid. Jesus is the reason that a holy God, the one who made us, can look at us in our sin and show us mercy. He's the reason that God can remember us as his children and not as his enemies. Jesus is the only one, in other words, who can resolve this great dramatic tension that runs through the entire Bible. He's the one who can resolve the tension that runs through our story as well. Just to bring this full circle, because Jesus bears our sin and gives us this new identity, because Jesus redefines who we are, because he names us as children of God adopted into his family once and for all, we have the courage, we have incentive even, to be honest about who we are and who we are not. When Jesus promises us a new identity through his blood, we have the courage to be honest about all the ways in which we have failed to measure up, about the ways in which we've been guilty of the same things that we despise. We get to confess to God in the language of Isaiah 64 because this is no longer who we are if we we join to Jesus. We are now children of God once and for all. Jesus has taken on who we were and he has made us now who he is perfectly once and for all. And because of Jesus, not only do we have the, the courage to admit who we are, to openly confess our sin and to, and, and to just get rid of all the pretending that keeps us from being reasonable about ourselves. Not only, not only does he unlock that possibility for us, Because Jesus has dealt with our sin and given us his identity as our own, we are now free to come to God without any sort of fear. We're free to come to him on the terms that Isaiah 64 lays out for us, as our father, as the one to whom we can come empty-handed, the one whom we can come and say, you know, I've got nothing to bargain with. I've got nothing to put myself over you to where you will owe me something. I am not the potter, I am the clay. But you have said through your son that there is nothing that I can ask for that you will not give me if it is for my good because you have not even spared your own son but delivered him up for us all. How can you deny us anything that we need? That is the confidence that Jesus' blood gives to us when we come to God. We get to come to him empty-handed because he's asked us to. He has given us everything we need in Jesus and he wants to apply what he's given us to our lives as we come to him in prayer. So we can be honest 
And we can be humble because we can be hopeful. We call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Father, we claim this promise now. We claim it. It is life. It is our only hope. Help us to savor it this week and next week, especially. Help us to live from it now, through the year to come, through the lifetime that's to come. Help us to live for this hope and not for the things of this world. Deliver us, we pray, for the sake of your Son and the glory of your name.